Welcome back to the Home Stretch, the property podcast with Ian McKenzie. And today we're joined by Chris Millington. Now, Chris is Director of Building and Construction Research at Numis. So, Chris, my first question to the benefit of me and the benefit of anyone listening is, can you please explain your position a little bit more? What are your responsibilities? And tell us a bit more about Numis as well. Okay, thanks very much, Holly. And, and, and thanks very much for having me on. So I think first, just to explain what Numis is. So Numis is an investment bank purely focused on the UK market. Uh, we have offices in London, Dublin and New York. And what we do is we advise companies on how to approach the market on capital raising solutions. We also advise fund managers, so professional investors. So these will be pension funds and insurance companies on what they should do with their holdings of stocks. So I work specifically in the building and property area. So what I would do is I would write research reports laying out our view on particular stocks and advise those fund managers whether or not they should be buying or selling those stocks for their portfolio. So we go into you know, macro analysis, but you know, quite a heavy level of micro analysis, looking at you know, the relative merits of the companies and their valuations. So I've done this now for 20 years. I've been a house building analyst, so I work on the research side, and I've been at Numis for around 15 years. Um, just to let you know, in terms of the companies we deal with. We, we look at all the house builders, the agents, the contractors, the merchants, the materials companies, and we go into a little bit of financial services with mortgage broking and also the letting market with Granger. We've done several IPOs, so Foxton's, Crest Nicholson, uh, Countryside Properties, Polypie, um, Ibstock, etc. I won't bore you anymore, but, but so that, that's what we do uh, in, in a slightly lengthy explanation. Well, you definitely sound like you know what you're talking about. And whenever we have guests on the podcast, I always try and do as much research as I can. And when I was searching for your names, you were coming up in the Financial Times kind of every time anything was going on in the industry. So, Ian, you certainly know your stuff much more than I do. So I'll let you do the heavy lifting with this. Yeah, this is this is a brilliant listen for uh, for people, um, I have to say, because we, we get a lot of data in the property industry. And we ref we recognise that data in the world that we live in. But here we are, Chris. We're with you now, and you live in a different place tonight than than, than us and consumers, which is about how the investors see it and what the stock market does. And so we can have some great questions. I'm obviously going to ask you at some point a little bit later on uh, why was purple brick so attractive to investors in the initial phases? Maybe not so much now, but I'll certainly ask that question because I know that that will be a burning uh, answer for lots of people to to listen to. But the first question I've got is, here we are at the end of a growth cycle in the property industry, and they can be cyclical. Um, people say that they're often every seven years. I don't know, you'll have the data to, to um, flatten that one out or not. But what's happening at the moment, in your view, in the housing market? And what's the predictions? Big, big questions to write from the off. Yeah, yeah, quite a big subject and, and a few <laughs> moving parts in it. Um, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure if it's every seven years, but with, with, with property, you can almost almost make any stat um, work, really, depending on your starting and end point. So I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree. Um, but clearly, the market has changed radically since COVID. Um, you know, initially, COVID and the housing market lockdown made people feel quite pessimistic about the market. And then we had this amazing run all the way through the second half of 20 and into 21. 
2022 was shaping up quite nicely through the first half. And then we had the debacle of the mini budget. And that really hit the market hard, particularly the new build sector. Um, I think, I think the, the, the main driving force of that was the impact it had on mortgages, you know, whether that be cost or availability. But if you look at the housing sector, uh, reservations in Q4 were down about 60% year over year. So uh, we do come into this year, you know, with, with, with challenges. Um, you know, what, what do I think will happen? I, I, I'm not really an advocate of a big crash. I don't really see the ingredients for that happening at the moment. I think, you know, many of the, the, the more pessimistic forecasts uh, were put out quite soon after the mini budget. And I think quite a lot has changed since then, particularly in the mortgage market, but just also with respect to confidence. And I also think as well, it, it, it's the case that 2023 has started somewhat better than we thought it would do. I think that's partly in reaction to, to mortgage costs getting better. I think it's also confidence in the UK feels a little bit firmer. Um, so I, I do think if people reassess those forecasts, they probably wouldn't be quite so negative. Now, I could bore you with all the different parts of it, um, Ian, and I'm more than happy to go through. But just at the moment, we don't see a huge amount of forced sellers coming out of the market. Okay. So for we, forced sellers, for listeners, what's the technical definition of that? Well, well certainly my definition is, is people who can't afford their mortgage and okay. therefore have to sell at any price. You know, it, it's not a... a a choice people want to make, uh, but it's a choice people need to make. And, you know, th this is what we've seen in past recessions. You know, people aren't able to service the mortgage, repossessions become quite high, and that yeah. puts downward pressure on the market. But if, if I do take it granularly, and I think there are a couple of points to make here, if I look at the owner-occupier market, and, and I think this is true of the wider housing market generally, is the employment market is the key driver. And I think that's, you know, it, it relates to confidence, it relates to people's ability to buy, it relates to all sorts of things. Now, if I look at the jobs market today, we've got a similar number of people in employment to 2019. Unemployment's pretty low at 3.7%. Yeah. And whilst unemployment is going to rise, if we look at what the OBR forecasts, the Office for Budget Responsibility, they think it will peak at around 4.9%. Now, if I go and look back at the last three housing recessions in the early 80s, the early 90s in the GFC, the comparable points for unemployment are 11.9%, 10.7% and 8.5%. So I just don't see the pressure coming from people losing the jobs and having to sell. We've also obviously got wage growth. And I do understand the cost of living issues are, are creating you know, bigger issues further down people's P&Ls. But I do think things like you know, energy prices moderating, the government support there. Um, it also feels inflation's now past its peak. And also the prospect of mortgage costs being 6.5% as they were last October just doesn't feel like it's going to come to pass at the moment. Mm. Yeah, so, so I feel the owner-occupier market looks fairly secure. I don't see house builders being forced sellers. I, I think they were a big part of the, the fall in prices in the GFC. Um, mm. You know, they were running for cash. There was reports of them doing buy one, get one freeze on flats as they just needed to monetize their balance sheets. If I look at the sector today, it runs about five billion of net cash. It was running about five billion of net debt in the GFC. And I think the one bit which does concern me a little bit on forced sellers is the buy to let market in London and the southeast. Okay. Um, you know, the cost of debt is higher than yields there. Um, and we are starting to see some evidence of, of landlords selling. Uh, there's also clearly quite a big regulatory burden going on and taxes have, have taken the toll there. However, you know, what we are seeing in the rental market is a particularly, you know, 
tight supply demand backdrop and that's driving rental prices up so if this persists it will offset a lot of that um, funding cost increase and potentially you know moderate that level of selling from from the buy to let market yeah i mean the, so um in summary how do you think that it's more of a soft landing than a big bump in terms of house prices this year which i would agree yeah. it is inextricably linked to employment and employment is still very stable isn't it so that's so that's very good what yeah. do you think it's going to do to house prices and transactional volume so we're House prices, if you look at the indices, are down about 3% or so from their peak. And if I you know, talk to the house builders, whilst they've not cut headline prices, they've increased incentives by about 3%. So it's the same impact from a net pricing point of view. What we've seen so far this year, certainly for the house builders, is week on week sales rates have got better. Um, you know, To the point that sales rates in Q4 last year were 0.3. In January, there were 0.5, and we're now trending at 0.6. So the pressure on prices is starting to moderate from them as, as the volumes start coming through. So I would be of the opinion prices won't fall by more than 5%, and I do think we're going to start seeing some stability. I'm sure people have very different views there, but I would be at the more positive end of the spectrum. However, volumes are going to get hit hard, in my opinion. Um, you know, the consequence of the mini budget last year um, and the freeze in sales last year, and similarly the slower start in sales this year, we think will take transaction volumes down about 20%. So that's from about 1.2 million to about a million. Now, if I was looking outside of the GFC, that would be the lowest, pretty much on record. So it's a very low level of turnover for a country with 25, 26 million homes. Um, and and I would, it, it, it would it would be the lowest outside of the GFC. And I think that's the biggest risk to agents that listen to this, isn't it? Listen to this, which is the size of the pie is going to diminish. So what are you going to do to either A, increase your size of that pie or B, monetize the opportunities that you've got? But that'll, uh, that'll come on a different podcast. I won't ask you about that one, Chris. That'd be a little bit unfair. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, what do you see from, you mentioned re rentals, you mentioned yields. So are you thinking predominantly that's reluctant landlords? So people that are not necessarily serial landlords or is there a combination of the two? I, th I think it's a combination of the two, really. And, you know, clearly there are accidental landlords post-COVID and the purchase of second homes and rates subsequently rising. However, I, I would think that's a fairly small part of the pie. Um, what I think's really hit landlords more than anything is you know, post the 26 ch 2016 changes in taxation uh, to mortgage interest relief, um, there's clearly a stamp duty surcharge on the purchase of second homes, which makes building a portfolio more difficult. We've also obviously got all the EPC ratings coming through in 2025, which potentially puts a capex bill on a lot of landlords' shoulders. Right. And then, you know, the icing on the cake was mortgage rates going up. And whilst we're seeing mortgage rates for owner-occupiers, you know, falling down to about four-ish percent on some of the lower LTV products, you will see higher rates for the buy-to-let sector. And, you know, when you consider yields in London and the Southeast, you know, can be in the fours in, in many cases, mm. it clearly makes it quite a difficult economic decision to, to hold that and, and, and take the hit in the short term. Yeah, it's interesting, wasn't it? I mean, I can remember back in the day, and when I say back in the day, back in the 80s, because you referred to the 80s, you'd be looking at 8 to 10% yields as a minimum, wouldn't you? Effectively. You, you certainly would have done. But the, yeah, capital, and... the capital appreciation was the thing that the investors looked at. So long as they were covering costs, they'd look at the capital appreciation. But if that's also waning a little bit th this year as well, then you can see why it's a difficult challenge. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, there's always concerns about 
further regulation. We've seen what's happened up in Scotland with yeah. regard to rent, rent freezes up there. Yeah. So I just think it's become a less attractive way of investing. But I, I don't see a full exodus. You know, I think a lot of people aren't particularly levered on their buy-to-let properties. But I do think on, on the edge, we will see selling pressure in buy-to-let. Interesting. You mentioned affordability. Uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So what's the sort of the stat in terms of dual income households? Um, what's the impact of the interest rates coming up to a mean average of four, four and a half percent ish mortgage rates into the future? Yeah, yeah. So th there's lots of stats out there on affordability, um, most of which look at single household income. Um, clearly, most households have two owners in them today. Uh, and I, I saw a stat some time ago that two thirds of people who buy a house are in a dual income household. So I do think a lot of these measures are flawed and over exaggerate the affordability issue. Now, I'm not trying to you know, get away from the fact that affordability has changed quite radically from the first half of 2022. Yeah. But if I do look at it in a historic context on um, real household income and real house prices, I think if mortgage rates settle at around four, four and a half percent, we'll have a similar sort of mortgage servicing burden as we had somewhere between 2003 and 2005. Now, I'm not pretending that means housing is, is as cheap as it has been. It's clearly going to hit people quite hard. But I similarly don't see people throwing in the towel because they've got to live somewhere. And often the alternative is going into the rental market where, you know, availability is poor and inflation is high. So I think it's all down to where mortgage rates do settle. Um, and I do think if I look back in history, mortgage rates of four, four and a half percent are manageable. But I do think it will mean house price growth is, is going to be fairly paltry for some time. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And, and what's the um, developer's view on this? Because if they've had a, um, they, if they've got land bank um, that they've got, you know, available land that they can build on, the government is very keen to build more houses because there's a, 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 um, a lack of homes coming to the marketplace. But if cost of buildings increase quite so dramatically as it, as it has, uh, what, are the, what are the developers telling you about their supply this year versus previous years? So... The, the, the house builders recovered from probably doing about 130,000 units a year um, post the GFC and the fallout there to doing just over about 200,000 last year. Right. We would expect house building volumes to fall back about 25% in, in reaction to, to that freeze in sales rates last year. We're, we're also in, encountering quite a lot of planning problems at the moment, yeah. Yeah. you know, whether that's because planning applications have been slower to be processed because of work from home, whether it be through factors like nutrient neutrality. But it's also been impacted by the fact the government has abandoned their top-down targets. So you're now starting to see a moratorium in certain local authorities on planning. So I don't think planning has been particularly helpful at the moment. But the priority of the builders, you know, having been caught out quite, you know, quite heavily in the GFC, is to protect their balance sheets. So I don't think they'll go hell to leather and build, you know, into a market which doesn't look, look accepting of volumes. I think they'll try and manage their business to, to where the market is. So that will hit volumes hard, as I say, about 25%. And my probably bigger concern longer term there is, is how the private sector, not the quoted builders who are exceptionally well capitalised, is how the private builders actually ramp up post this because they do utilise debt. 
the cost of that has clearly risen very materially. Mm. And similarly, the time to build out a development has lengthened because of the slower sales rates. So it's going to put a, you know, a lot of these private developers in quite a difficult situation with regards to ramping back up when, when conditions mm. stabilise. And that might have an impact on sites that have been bought with options, options to purchase, et cetera, because if you look at, I mean, whether they can legally contract out of that or not, but they um, could, could create an interesting scenario for local local developers and one thing for independent agents to think about from an opportunity perspective. What about um, the help to buy? Because that's been that's been removed everywhere apart from Wales, I think you said, didn't you? Yeah, so a really quick bit of background on help to buy but obviously introduced in 2013 and was only set to run till 2017 we then had an extension to 2020 now this is the equity loan scheme i'm talking about not the mortgage guarantee scheme which came about and was disbanded quite quickly and then we had a further extension through to 2023 but on the last extension on help to buy two it was restricted to first-time buyers only and regional price caps were put in place now, prior to that, it was open to all buyers of new homes, provided it was their only home. And it was up to properties valued at £600,000 with no regional caps there. So the scheme was curtailed somewhat in, in, in its last form. Now, if I look at you know, what, what, what's happened under the scheme, you've had about 360,000 properties being bought under help to buy uh, in the new build sector. That's about 20 to 25% of the volumes over, over the same time period. Now, at its height, it was underpinning circa 40% of some of the house builders' volumes. Now, under help to buy two and that those changes to first-time buyers and, and regional price caps, that had fallen to about 20% of volumes. So they've not been able to take reservations since October on the scheme, and they've got to show all completions by March 2023. Right. But it was very much the case that they were short of stock availability through the course of last year. You know, they got behind on build relative to reservations through the COVID period. And so stock availability for help to buy was low. And so I would say reservations under the scheme since June have, have been, you know, de minimis, really. Right. Now, initially, it didn't seem to have a, a material impact. I think the mortgage market had moved on far enough that you know, help to buy was there, was designed to assist first time buyers in bridging higher LTV loans by providing an equity stake and therefore giving them the ability to actually, you know, attain lower LTV mortgages. Mm. If I look today, we've got wide spreads on high LTV mortgages. So the impact if the mortgage market stays where it is today is going to be quite large because the scheme is needed today like it was needed back in 2013. I don't think there's much appetite for the government to roll it out again. Um, and I think, it, you know, that how much of an impact it has for the sector, I think, will be tied ultimately to to what the progress of the mortgage market is uh, over the next year or so. Yeah. And um, with the global financial crash, it's, we're in a very different place than we are today because banks are fluid. They have lending. It's just knowing the rate to sell it at, isn't it, effectively, which was the immediate disturbance after the trustonomics because of um, bonds being you know, all over the place and the cost of debt being so high. What, what, how do you see the financial markets playing this year? Nicely? Well, I, I don't know if they, they ever play uh, totally nicely, uh, Ian, to be honest, but I, I, the banks are in a materially different place to where yeah. they were in the GFC. Um, you know, we've probably all watched the movies about mortgage-backed securities and all these various different products which are being used to, you know, to, to push lending. You know, if I look at the lending backdrop today, 
Um, we don't see a great deal of high LTV loans in the market. We don't see a great deal of interest only loans. You know, they were quite a big feature of the pre-GFC market. Yeah. I think also a big development in the lending market has been the mortgage market review, which came yeah. out in 2014. Yeah. You know, what that did is, is clearly put restrictions about how the banks lend. But I think the most important bit there is the stress test they do on loans. So if we do look at you know, the stress people are under from moving from a one and a half percent interest rate to a four percent. It's a big shock. But under the MMR, lenders are forced to stress test loans for the standard variable rate, which, if you do look back, has been three and a half percent quite quite consistently over the last few years, plus 300 basis points on loans. Yeah. So most people are being stress tested to six odd percent interest rates. Yeah. And it looks like we're landing at four ish. So I think the lending market will be there. I think the banks are keen to lend. I think they yeah. make a good return on equity. Um, and if I look at their capital ratios, you know, which were two or 3% at the GFC, they're now running at 12 or 13%. So I think, I think the banks will play ball. I think they've got a desire to lend. Uh, I just think they need to know what the risk profile is with regard to yeah. their spreads before those high LTV prompts come back. The only but around the MMR is that, that the exercise would have been made at a time when the cost of live, living was so much lower. Yeah, and that's and, the only but. Yeah, and, and, and I, I do take that, and it, it clearly alters the equation there. Yeah. I think my only thought on the cost of living, and it comes back to this, this point I made earlier on, on, on four sellers, is I do think people prioritise the payment of their mortgage over a lot of things. I mean, you can't prioritise it over food and to some degree keeping warm, but you can prioritise it over going out and holidays yeah. and other spending. So I don't see people not paying their mortgages because of the cost of living. I think it makes life more difficult, but I don't think it necessarily means people throw, throw the keys in. So a state agency in property used to be the perfect economic example of supply and demand from a pricing perspective. What I've just heard in the last few minutes is that there is 25% less new builds. Um, it's taking longer for people to move. There's less stock onto the market. I'm getting a sense, um, here we are first quarter, that there is really strong demand, there's, there's pent up frustration from people. Uh, could it be that prices hold a little bit firmer than people, than the experts are saying? Well, that, that, that's kind of what I'm hoping in, you know, you, you, you heard me earlier, I'm, I'm not an advocate of a big crash and I actually think prices are probably gonna flatline broadly yeah. from here. That there'll always be volatility in, in, in the house price indices. You know, they report prices are moving one and a half percent a month, which I think in reality, you know, for, for those of us in the market, it doesn't really work that way. You get yeah. statistical errors there. So there will be some noise in some of those indices, but but certainly I, I'm quite encouraged from what I've seen so far this year. Yeah. And I, I do think the mortgage market is continuing to improve. And I think that will help the market sustain and, and normalize. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Interesting. Right, so I've got to ask you the killer question, if I may. So I want to go back to um, Purple Bricks. Uh, I'd like to ask, um, there's a, lots of estate agents that are listening to this could never understand the model that here we have a business model that goes to the consumer. Whether you like it or loathe it is irrelevant to this conversation. The consumer resonated with the offering. Um, but the bit that made it successful it became a self-fulfilling prophecy in the early days because they had so much money to market themselves that they were able to change consumer behavior. So what was it that the investment world saw in that model that actually made it a self-fulfilling prophecy at that time? We know that where it currently is, is a different situation, of course. 
Yeah, of course. And, and uh, the first thing I should say is we haven't covered Purple Bricks over the years, but we've clearly kept a close eye on it because yeah. we do look after a lot of the traditional agents and, and have acted for them. So I think Purple Bricks really resonated with people as they saw it as a very disruptive force in a market which I don't think they felt had, had moved on in many years. I think you often get the feeling from consumers that, that they think it costs too much to sell their house in, in commission rates. I think what they don't understand often is not every house gets sold by an agent and there are costs in selling those houses. So it's not a one for one relationship. So I do think it resonated in the sense that it was bringing something new to the market. And initially their success, and I think it goes to your point about their ability to burn money, um, Ian, is they were able to market, they were able to price low, they brought in a lot of listings. I can remember forecasts from people saying Purple Bricks was going to be 25% of the market. Now, I was always a bit sceptical. You look at most homeowners, uh, they're, they're generally probably not the most tech savvy. Uh, you know, most homeowners are over 50 in, this, in, in the UK. They haven't used online tools to do their biggest purchase uh, before. So I thought there was always going to be some reticence from quite a lot in the market. Mm. And I think the, the other problem Purple Brick ultimately had was you've got this big, big growing bank of disgruntled customers because whereas a traditional agent would take on a property and if it didn't sell it, you don't get charged, Purple Bricks was charging them. So you end up this bigger and bigger bank of disgruntled customers right. who either don't think they got the right service or, or, or just think they paid for something they didn't get. I also wondered it with their model, how much of there was an incentive for them to maximize pricing on it, you know, given it was a fixed fee model. Um, you know, there, there was no upside from gaining extra price. It was a, a volume model. But I do think the investment community liked it. I, we could see the traditional agents getting concerned about the rise of the online agents. You know, some took stakes in the online agents uh, just to give them, you know, some protection against that. But I think as, as time passed, the market share started peaking at, you know, five or six percent for Purple Bricks and has subsequently headed backwards. Mm. I think the traditional agents feel that having an individual at the front end driving the purchase and having all the tools around you and the resources of a traditional agent does have a value and uh, it feels like they're winning back some market share there. So the so the investors were interested from a growth perspective so total available marketplace opportunity opportunity for scale effectively is that is that it? Yeah it, so it was a big market share gain a lot if you look at a lot of tech businesses they lose money, but they make big gross margins. And the yeah. whole idea is, is if we can drive revenue hard enough, we'll more than offset our administration costs. And that big gross margin will start falling through to the bottom line. Mm. And clearly when people were forecasting such big market share gains for Purple Bricks, that was the output they were thinking. Now, it never really came to pass. Mm. Um, you know, the flow through of that margin never got there. And, you know, Purple Bricks has, I think it's made some small profits over the years, but 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 nothing material like like some of the traditional agents. So yes, I, I think it was the growth angle people were buying into, but but ultimately what profits were going to be due from that growth angle once they attained scale. Yeah, and of course the early investors would have done very well out of it, wouldn't they, in terms of increasing share value? So they would argue they that certainly would have done. They would they would argue that it worked, even though a state agency would say it didn't work and that, I think that's the bit that most agents str really struggle to get their head around which is it's not making profit they're not servicing the customers in the same way that independent agents claim that they service their their customer base um, and yet the share value increased increased and increased and then all of a sudden it, it's declined 
um, to the point, and I don't know what the market cap is at the moment of PV. In the 20s, I would say now. Yeah. 1.3 billion at one point, is that right? Yeah, well, if you look at it in share price terms, it nearly hit six pounds, and right. now it's single digit pence. Right. So we're, it, it's fallen a long, long way. Um, it's still burning lots of cash. Um, it seems to be having problems retaining LPEs to some degree. Yeah. Um, and they've just hoisted the for sale sign over it. Uh, it will be interesting to see what appetite there is out there, you know, for a business which is struggling on listings, is struggling on cash flow. I think the opportunity for anyone who buys it, and you know, I, again, must caveat, I don't cover purple bricks, but it does feel like the upselling opportunity into things like financial services, conveyancing, et cetera, could be there because there is still a lot of volume feeding through purple bricks. Yeah. Um, but you will have to arrest that cash situation quite quickly. Interesting. Interesting times ahead. We'll have so, to wait and see. I won't, I won't ask you the question, who do you think is going to buy it? Because that would be unfair. But we will no doubt find out who's going to buy it if it is up for sale. So that would be an interesting one. Holly, Holly, what have you heard? Listen, you both speak so kind of professionally and knowledgeably about all of this. And I think this is one of those episodes where people are going to listen to it once and then listen to it back and take notes on everything you've said, because there's certainly some really key takeaways there for some of our traditional agents and independent agents. I think the key takeaway is that the housing market seems to be moderate. Forecasts should potentially be more positive than they were at the end of last year. Um, and who knows, Purple Bricks could be exiting the market altogether or becoming a whole different entity kind of in this in this year. Isn't that right, Ian? Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? We'll have to wait and see. Brilliant. Well, points, thank you ever so much, Chris, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us and no doubt we will speak to you again. Absolutely awesome. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Holly.